0: hello everybody welcome to health chatter in our very special edition today it's it's an enlightening show and we'll get into more of the details on that in a second but it's really going to be an interesting show with a very very special guest who you'll you'll hear about in just a second in the meantime, I'd like to introduce all of our illustrious background people who make this, this podcast uh, successful, and that includes Aaron Collins and Maddie Levine-Wolf, who do our background research for us and help, imagine this, help Clarence and I come up with some talking points, <laughs> even though we probably could maybe come up with some of the things to chat about. In addition, um, Matthew Campbell is our production person and takes care of all the editing and details on getting a show off and running. And we have a, um, a colleague with us, Jim Barrett, who works with, with Clarence in his work at Human Partnership. And then, of course, there's Clarence himself, Clarence Jones, who's a great colleague and um, Every day, one way or the other, I give him a virtual hug. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's really wonderful working with him. And, of course, we couldn't do this without um, a great sponsor, and that's Human Partnership, who um, has been very gracious and helped with us to sponsor our, our podcast. They're a great group, Human, H-U-E-M-A-N, partnership very, very involved in the community here. And so thank you to them. So today, wow, this is going to be fun. Um, We have a special guest with us, Catherine Standifer, who has written a a wonderful book. I'm actually showing it on the screen here, but all of you listeners won't be able to see it. But she's written a, a wonderful book that I can highly, and I underscore the word highly, recommend to you it's called lightning flowers which is really a, a, um, a memoir of sorts based on experiences that she's had in the uh, in the health system and so Catherine um, she's got she's got an incredible background besides an incredible writer You know, it's one thing to write about a condition. It's another thing to engage the audience when you, when you, it feels like you're almost living this this condition that she has, which we'll get into. But Catherine is the author of this book, obviously. It's a finalist for the 2021 Kirkus Prize in Nonfiction and the Arizona New Mexico Book Award and Memoirs. Lightning Lightning Flowers selected as New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Was featured on NPR Fresh Air, People Magazine, The Oprah Magazine. I, I could go on, on and and on and um, I could spend an hour just giving the accolades behind this and and you. So um, really, really thank you. So, um, you know, I'll tell you I, when I read this book just to get the, the ball rolling here, and and everybody chime in who's on this podcast. Um, I was struck when I read it by the themes in the book itself. And I had to write them down so I'd remember them, but um, obviously a serious medical condition, which we'll get into, navigating the insurance, the health insurance arena. Oh my God. I mean, you know, it's like I'll underscore that. Um, your lifestyle. Um, What's a life worth which is kind of a, a key a key theme of, of this book in the sense of you know the technology um, implications for policy um, whether you know I kind of thought of it on, on one end when I was reading this is it's it's kind of uh, analogous to orphan drugs that are that uh, people need. Um, But this is kind of like orphaned medical procedures, it's orphan treatment, it's orphan technology. Um, And then of course, medical management. So those were all themes that kind of kept circulating in my my head when I was was reading your fabulous book. So I was wondering if you might want to comment at least those themes a little bit, Catherine.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. This is a real treat. Um, Yeah, just listening to you talk, it was a reminder of how hard it was to pull together everything that I wanted to shine through this book and the really interesting truth that I didn't have to reach too far for any of it. The experience I lived inherently connected all these things already, that my body, my daily life was shaped by public policies and that the way a medical technology or treatment is accessible or not accessible has a lot to do with who you are and where you are on the planet and uh, these sort of invisible calculations that we make culturally about where to spend our resources and how to relate to death. And so it's a big swirl and I hope that the personal story carries those themes without them becoming too overwhelming, um, just in showing that one life is bumping up against all of these issues at the same time, just moving through a system and and trying to live a life.
0: So, you know, for our listeners, um, why don't you just briefly, non-medically, you know, describe, you know, QT syndrome, so they kind of know what kind is the overarching umbrella that we're dealing with here?
1: Yeah. So the heart is an electrical organ and each time it beats, it has to electrically prepare for its next beat. And so in long QT syndrome, that repolarization period can get disrupted. You can end up with parts of the heart that are ready to fire and parts of the heart that aren't ready to fire. And if it gets, desynchronized like that, you're going to have an arrhythmia. You're going to have different parts of the heart kind of quivering instead of pumping blood. So long QT syndrome, at least the type that I have is due to a genetic mutation. Um, and the particular type that my sister and I have is called type two. And that has a little bit more to do with the adrenaline response in the body. So it's often, um, this desynchronization of the heart can occur because of being startled in some way, which is truly bizarre. My younger sister started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room at age 18, and the day that my long QT presented itself, I had taken a phone call (laughs) and run out to a parking lot. So these are truly mundane activities. There is a type of long QT syndrome that uh, has to do more with physical activity, and there is a type that has to do more with sleep, and some people do end up with medically induced Uh, or medication-induced long QT syndrome because of certain medications that they're taking that change the heart. Um, But ours is more likely to be dangerous when an ambulance ambulance passes or someone jumps out of the uh, woods or (laughs) something random happens.
0: So let me, you know, this is what struck me. And I want to get your your perception of this you were diagnosed so it's like you know when somebody is like first diagnosed with cancer for instance it's like what do people do you kind of it's that initial um mind shock oh my god you know now what and you kind of go into this mode of what do i do where do i go for information etc etc so maybe share with us what went through your mind when you were told this, although maybe you weren't told because you were shocked, right? I mean, but at any rate, when you found out that you were diagnosed with this, how did you, what were the first responses that you did?
1: Yeah, so when I was 24 years old, I'd been uh, working as a ski instructor and a climbing guide in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And as I said before, I took this phone call during band practice and ran outside into a parking lot and then woke up up with gravel in my forehead, not knowing who I was or where I was, not able to move or speak. And slowly those faculties returned to me and my guitarist grabbed my phone and called my boyfriend. And really the first thing I said was, you can't take me to the hospital. I don't have insurance. I'll never be able to get insurance again. And that's because the year was 2009 and the Affordable Care Act had not yet been passed. And so it was still legal to discriminate against someone as an insurer because of quote unquote pre-existing conditions. And so the initial days for me, uh, I did end up going to the hospital and they did do an EKG and the, the ER doctor sort of came back and unceremoniously confirmed my worst fears, which is that I had the same uh, diagnosis as my younger sister. Uh, She already had an implanted cardiac defibrillator at the time. And so I had a sense of probably what was about to unfold for me, but I didn't know how it would unfold as an uninsured person. So one of the distinctions that I try to make clear in the book throughout is what's the difference between the way a diagnosis or a medical condition impacts your life between that and what what is the way that the technology or the medical system that we're in impacts a life so being diagnosed with a heart condition at 24 where you can end up in sudden cardiac death i think that's terrifying to anyone yeah. for me it really had the mark of how am i going to access the care that i need and how am i going to pay for it so I was really terrified every day. I thought I was just going to, to fall down and die. (laughs) And luckily I had a partner at the time and he wouldn't leave my side. If he went to the grocery store or something, he would have someone call me so that we had someone like quote unquote with me. And, and it took a while for that type of hypervigilance to settle down. It was five months between passing out in the parking lot and, getting a cardiac defibrillator implanted which i thought was going to feel like crossing the finish line into safety but really uh it brought me into a whole different level of awareness of sensations in my body and fears of what could be happening to me if things were going wrong uh would it would it be there to save my life so it's um it's really a process to come to terms with a diagnosis and looking back uh, there are all sorts of forms of support that I wish I'd had to really incorporate. What does this diagnosis means? What are the ways in which I'm safe and what are the ways in which I really have to be careful and, and how do we create the ability to live day to day and not just be so frozen with that terror?
0: You know, um, when I was when I was reading your book out and, and thinking about devices in you, Okay, I have a device in me. I have I have knees that have been replaced. Okay, and um, oftentimes I would describe to people this sense of a new normal. If you and I'm sure you probably get that, it's like so. Tell us how normal changed. Okay, so like you know before you had it or before you thought you had it and then you had it, and then you have this device, and you know, describe the new normal for us.
1: Yeah, one significant part of the new normal is that that sense of how you relate to symptoms. Hmm. I had always been a very healthy person. And so if something was going weird in my body, I pretty much could just dismiss it and say, wow, bodies are weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in that way, I probably missed some of the initial signs of long QT showing up in my life. Um, once, once you've been seriously ill or been through a surgery where something foreign gets implanted in your body, there's that hyper-awareness of sensation um, you know the the sense of like i am theoretically allowed to do this activity but has my heart actually healed is the wire that's been implanted in my heart actually secured enough that this action i'm about to take with my arm is not going to dislodge it move it my younger sister's first defibrillator went off by accident once because the wire moved inside her heart it started double counting her heartbeats so there was this very vivid sense of there's something inside me that can fail at any time. And when you're lucky that hypervigilance really settles back and you do gain a sense of safety with a device. But for me, the new normal very much meant paying attention to every little sensation and really thinking about what those things could mean. And, and as a new cyborg, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had to, go into the cardiologist's office every three months and have this device check, check checked, have its information downloaded. And it took a while as well to understand that the vast majority of the time there was going to be nothing on that check, that the device was watching my heart, but my heart hadn't needed to use the device. There was going to be no big scary surprise. Um, but it took a while to learn that. Um, we also were checking up on my valve because when we place a cardiac defibrillator, the defibrillator wire is coming through the tricuspid valve and it's a very heavy wire. And so sometimes it sort of holds the door jar. Sometimes it can actually rip the tissue in that area. And so, yeah, this, this kind of ongoing monitoring and doing the monitoring in order to be safe, but also getting very nervous about will we find something, will the situation change? And then the other pieces of being a cyborg (laughs) in those early years, as I thought about it a lot, um, meant not going through the security Mm -hmm. scanner at the airport, needing to get pat it down. Um, Exactly. These days, I have to be careful about um, metal name tags not going on my left side because magnets can turn off a Mm -hmm. defibrillator. Um, not putting my cell phone too close to that side because there's a magnet in some of the new cell phones. So just this awareness of my body as technological in a way that was not true before.
2: Yeah. So, Katie, this is Clarence. Yep. I I want to say I truly love reading your book. Uh, it was uh, quite um, it was quite a journey for me to to be able to read uh, such. Uh, uh, to, to hear your language and how you, how you wrote so so, so well. Uh, it also caused me to, to think more deeply about my own personal life and my own family. And, and I, I said this a little bit earlier is that uh, it actually caused me to ask my, my, my own family. And I have brothers and sisters and uncles that have defibrillators inside of them. I never knew that. And so I really, really appreciate that. I want to ask you this question about, because I was, when I f- first read your book or when I first saw your book, it said lightning, lightning flowers. Tell me about lightning flowers.
1: (laughs) Lightning flowers are the thin branched burns that can cover the bodies of lightning strike survivors. And it's basically the path that electricity follows in the body, which is often along the lines of water, moisture. And they're essentially burns, like pink feathery burns And they're beautiful, but they're also terrible. You know, it's not an enjoyable experience for a lightning strike survivor, but they're marked in some way by that electricity moving through their body. And I got really into the term lightning flowers in 2012 after the events that are in the prologue of this book, which is that I was playing intramural soccer in grad school and my implanted cardiac defibrillator randomly started shocking me. It turns out there was an error in the settings and that experience of having electricity move through my body, uh, to the tune of, I think it's 26 joules or 850 volts. Um, it was extremely horrifying. And when I went into the hospital the next day, I was really dismissed. I was sort of waved off as one who has no wounds. This is such a normal experience to someone in a pacemaker clinic. And it's absolutely not a normal experience to have as a human. And so I thought a lot about how in any other part of human history to take that type of electricity, especially from the inside of your body from next to your heart, that would be nothing short of spiritual transformation. Mm -hmm. And what did it mean to find a spiritual understanding for what I was going through? What did it, what did it mean when I took lightning inside my body and Lying on the ground after I took the shocks, I could smell my own burned tissues, which is also something that I've never heard medical professionals talk about. But uh, it was unmistakable, and I just wondered, what does the inside of my body look like right now in all the places that the electricity moved? You know, my my hands had curled into claws. My chest was so sore. The next day, it really, the electricity had moved throughout my body, and on that night in particular, as I finished with those shocks, as I was lying on the ground deep breathing, I found myself thinking about what this device really was inside me that had felt like something that would keep me safe when I first got it, but that now felt almost like a predator. And I found myself really thinking about how strange it was to have this chunk of metal inside me and that metal came from earth. Metal came from mountains. And I was already a a very socially aware person. I think I'd been hearing a lot about the issue of conflict Mm. minerals, which at the time meant gold, tin, tantalum, and tungsten in the Great Lakes region of Africa. And I just started thinking like, what if the metal in my body came from a place where children were forced to work, where women were kept as slaves, where the process Seeds were used to fund human rights abuses. And what would it mean then for me to have this in my body if it did save my life? Which, as I said earlier, it ended up being an error, an error in my set like my flowers. That this question came into my body on that particular night, and that I got really obsessed with it. I was sort of marked by my relationship to the device changing and turning toward it to really ask, What are you?
0: You know, I. That, that question I would I've been asking you know colleagues and friends of mine it's like um if you or a friend or a family member um all of a sudden needs a device like this do you even think twice do you I mean and and, and everybody says no you don't Think twice, but you did. At least afterwards, you thought about it, which was incredible. Um, Erin, you have a question.
3: A question, or maybe more of um, a pivot in the conversation. We brought it up in the beginning, but I really want to talk about um, the concepts of the burden of the disease versus burden of the system, and it's something that I've personally struggled with too. Um, I feel like, and maybe this is a dramatized way to put it, but I feel like sometimes in our system, and this is something that I picked up in in the book, and I'd just really like to get your thoughts and and what you were thinking about in the situation, and how you put it. Yeah,
1: this is an important part of it. You know, my younger sister was really... generous with me in sharing a lot of her experience point, counterpoint, counterpoint in a lot of ways. My younger sister me in her dorm room, it's always been very clear that she needed this device in order to stay alive. And when this initial health event occurred, she was on my father's insurance as a college student and it was good in insurance. So the financial burden of that surgery was not overwhelming. And she has always had consistent care in order to check up on that device. She works in private business. And so any job that she takes does have insurance. And that is the opposite (laughs) of the experience that I've had. You know, the question of how I ended up uninsured at the beginning of my story is really a question of privilege. I had been so able-bodied and I came from a community where everyone had insurance. And so I'd never seen what could happen to someone without it. I was really divorced from the sense of people's lives being changed from not being able to access care or getting financially buried by care. And so I was an outdoor educator, mostly so that I could write during the off season. I always knew that I was going to be a writer. I knew it would be a difficult career and require a lot of risks. And so working a lot in the summer and in the winter and then writing in the fall and spring seemed my best chance to sort of get things off the ground and put in the time I needed to put in. And I just wasn't earning very much money. And the first year out of college, I did pay for some kind of catastrophic coverage, but the second year, several hundred dollars a month just seemed way out of range for me. And again, I was 22, 23, thought I was invincible. And so I let that policy lapse and really found myself in the middle of how the American system actually works. And, and what's so wild about my experiences. If I can't make it work, who can? I'm a white woman from an upper middle-class family who has all sorts of resources. I'm educated. I feel comfortable talking to doctors, asking them questions. Um, There are just a lot of ways in which I am set up for success. And I hope one of the things that's evident from this book is the way that individuals within this system bent over backwards to try to make things happen for me. The reason I have a cardiac defibrillator is that a doctor was willing to donate his fee advised me on moving to uh, a pretty high-end area. Boulder, Colorado is not where everyone can move. Um, My parents helped me make that move in order to become a resident, in order to draw on social systems in that area. And then the doctor got the anesthesiologist to also donate his fee, lined up a free device from St. Jude Medical. Boulder Community Hospital ended up paying $84,000. And so I still ended up with $25,000 of medical debt as a 24 year old, which is not ideal, but it's way better than 180,000. And really seeing how individuals stepping into that system to try to help me had such a high impact, that's not replicable for all people. (laughs) That's a huge problem. And very similarly, later in the book, I'm so grateful to have insurance through the Affordable Care Act healthcare marketplace, but my experience really exposes some of the cracks in that system, namely that where I lived, which was a semi-rural city, Tucson, Arizona, uh, there was only one insurer on the Pima County marketplace, and that insurer then limited which hospitals I could go to and uh, I ended up with not the appropriate specialist in network and had to engage in a really huge healthcare battle in order to receive the specialty care that was appropriate to my situation. And so just seeing the way my sister has absolutely had terrifying things happen to her in terms of her health, in terms of recovering from surgeries, as I said earlier, the wire moved in her heart. She's she's also taken accidental shocks, but her life has fundamentally been shaped more by the condition and less by the way she moves through that system. Katie, hey, so,
2: I want to. I want to. Let me say this real quick, say San. Yeah. I want to thank you for your honesty because, Erin, mm-hmm. uh, that that was kind of the pathway I was going to go down as well. Uh, this whole issue around in, in insurance and that everybody doesn't have the opportunity to have it. And uh, I think you sharing your story about your struggles, even though and, and the way that you describe yourself, because people say, well, oh, no, you, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't have any troubles. OK, but but this is the part of, of having the honest health chatter where we have to be upfront and, and say that there are some real system, systemic issues that we have and that we have to continue to address. So I, I just want to just thank you uh, for your 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 question Aaron and also for your response.
0: You know it's it's interesting some of the the words that that came into my mind after after reading your book were um, a story that needs to be told, which Clarence basically just said. Uh, inspirational for sure emotional throughout right and honesty and um it's interesting that we were on the same same wavelength on that I actually you probably have to be dead from the neck up if you don't have that in your head after you read these you read your book so here's what what I think is is really intriguing. Let's talk about you going overseas, and you know, and and really um, navigating, if you will, the uh, you know where the pieces of these defibrillators come from, these you know these metals, et cetera, and addressing what is a life worth.
1: Yeah, this is the hardest part to talk about, I think, because it's truly a wicked question. Uh, Wicked meaning it can't be solved in a day, and I also don't know if it can be solved ever. The, The longer I work as a writer, the more I understand that my job is in some way to articulate questions that can't exactly be asked within any single discipline to really be someone who is trying to listen to something broader and really present a question with as much depth as I can. And I certainly have some, some little answers about um, things we can do that relate to how medical technologies are made and what resources they use and how we think about their role in our lives. But for me, as a writer, the path of following that obsessive question was really transformative. So in the days after I took those shocks to the heart, Heart. I traveled up to a St. Jude medical factory. Um, That company is now owned by Abbott, but at the time they were St. Jude. And I sat down with an engineer and we talked through what a defibrillator actually is. It's basically microelectronics, a battery and a capacitor in order to generate electricity. And then um, all of that technology is seated within a titanium can and connected to the heart by an insulated wire. So relatively simple, not very different from other microelectronics in our lives, like our cell phones. It, It just simply has to be implantable in the body which contains a lot of engineering challenges. And so I ended up traveling to another St. Jude factory in Silmar, California, where my device had actually been made. I got to meet some of the employees who worked on it, which was a striking experience to really think about that intersection of uh, people touching and building what goes inside us and our loved ones. And then I I had quite a journey around how exactly do you trace minerals in a device. And back in 2012, there was very little consciousness around how we figure out where things are from. Uh, The financial reform legislation, the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed in 2012, um, that contained a weird little writer called Section 1502, and basically a special int- interest group had attached sex- Section 1502 in order to get it passed, um, and it required any company registered on the Securities and Exchange Commission to, um, or, or any company on the U.S. Stock Exchange, any, anyone registered with the SEC To basically look at their products and determine whether there were gold, tin, tantalum, or tungsten from the Great Lakes region of Africa essential to the products functioning. And businesses just had no idea how to do this at the time. They started sending out these surveys to their suppliers, to their suppliers, to their suppliers, and really trying to figure out. Uh, where, where these minerals came from. So at the time that I wanted to trace my device, people were just trying to figure out how you might even do this. And so there wasn't an answer available to me. And in some ways, going down the rabbit hole of those particular minerals, I really started to see there are so many other minerals in my device too. And if I can't trace them to a specific place, what does it look like to think about both the worst case and best case scenarios for how? a product comes to be built and what types of human and non-human communities uh, it intersects. And I ended up choosing Madagascar as my primary site. There was a mine called Mbatuvi that was producing nickel and cobalt. It was a very new mine being carved out of endemic jungle. So it was very interesting to me, both because it had been lauded for its corporate social responsibility and also because It was destroying an ecosystem that is found nowhere else on the planet. And so the company was sort of um, twisting itself in knots, trying to figure out how you do biodiversity offsets that improve similar forests, even as they're destroying this one swath of forest. And then they're also trying to um, minister to the communities that have been moved off the mine site that are impacted by forest closures. And it was truly stunning to sort of watch all of the different ways that digging metal out of the earth changed everything (laughs) for human and biodiversity communities. And to really try to follow, like, what is it we actually even want from companies in these scenarios? What does it mean to be ethical in the best case scenario? And, And also this fundamental and really difficult truth that It's actually a little inappropriate in some ways for mining companies to be managing all these social environmental programs. Mining companies are good at getting rock out of the ground. And as one person told me off the off the record, just in terms of who it is, he said, We're not here to do God's work. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's it feels harsh. It's also true. It's not necessarily really their area of expertise. So So I really found myself winding way down different rabbit holes, trying to weigh, what does it mean when this metal ends up in my body? And how do we reckon with all of these very diverse consequences for people who by and large, will never have a chance to receive those similar yeah. technology?
0: You know, I, it, it's an amazing question. And, and and to your point, I think it's a hard question that I don't know will will be answered. But the mere fact that you put a hard question out there like this, it's kind of certainly as, as I was reading your book, it was this aha moment. It's just like, wait a minute here. It's just like, we all need to think about this. So let me talk about this um, health insurance a little bit. Um, I personally think it's unfair. I think the whole the whole system is whacked out, okay. Um, to the point of, um, you know, put a, put aside uh, devices, put aside the metals that go into devices. Aren't we all dependent upon our health in order to proceed as as humankind? Okay, and um, if Everything is so compromised or difficult. Um, I think, frankly, it adds to the disease. So to that point, I'm, I'm I'm gonna ask you this. All right, so you have this problem, the QT syndrome. So add to that stress. Okay, so I want you to reflect on that a, a little bit for our audience. Okay, on one hand, you have You know, a medical issue. On the other hand, it's in my mind at least, it would be exacerbated by all this stress.
1: That's particularly true of type 2 long QT. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, This idea of having more adrenaline in the system is exactly what can lengthen the QT interval and make it more likely that a heart goes into. Um, some form of arrhythmia or cardiac arrest. So I was highly aware that the exact experience I was having in the healthcare system could cause more harm in terms of my condition. And I also, when you think about the way a body recovers from something, my story is interesting because no one ever told me in any specific way, oh, now you're immune compromised. There's no specific reason that uh, having long QT syndrome would do that to you. And about six months after my device was placed, I became septic and we never completely figured out where the sepsis originated. It was group B strep, which can live benignly in the vagina or digestive tract. What was clear was I was not a healthy 24 year old in the way that I looked, there was something fundamentally in me that could not push back against this bacteria that usually is benign. It's usually quite controllable by the body's natural immune system. Mm. And it took over to such an extent that I was in in and out of the hospital for about three weeks. You know, I, um, had organs swelling. I ended up with pneumonia and a blood clot in my lung. It was very serious. And, I just remember that whole spring trying to recover from the implantation of my defibrillator. And I was working two jobs to try to pay off that 25 grand in debt. And and I wasn't resting. And that's right. And my partner and I started having all this trouble, which at the time, I don't think I really understood what was at the root of it. And later when I was writing those scenes, I understood that something fundamental about me had changed and my relationship with my body was so different. What I needed from my partner was so different. I was struggling to be able to articulate it. And I had all these vague terrors about what my future was going to look like. And so the way that um, falling through the cracks in that system, even though I did get the ICD impacted my health was really profound. And I almost died from it. And later on in the book, I described that healthcare battle that I mentioned earlier, where I'm trying to get an out of network authorization in order to see specialists. Uh, a defibrillator wire has cracked inside me. And then during an attempt to remove that wire, it actually snapped off. And, um, in, in an attempt to recover the wire through a different incision, we accidentally stripped the insulation off that wire. And so my current health situation is actually the same as it was at the end of the book five years ago, which is that I have a, a stripped nest of wire stuck in my right ventricle. And the terror for me in in some of the scenes at the end of the book is compounded not only because I'm having trouble accessing the right specialists through the system and basically spending all my time on hold, spending all my time calling people back, trying to coordinate something that patients just shouldn't be coordinating. You know, I couldn't get the insurer and the billing office to talk to each other. I couldn't get one doctor and the other doctor to talk to each other. There's just no coordination service because me being uh me being referred to that other doctor didn't have a route to earning anyone any money and so it wasn't it wasn't anyone's priority so i'm spending all of my time on that and when you think about what does it look like to receive care it doesn't look like having to wait on a, a hold for an hour. <laughs> it doesn't look like having to call back and call back and call back. If, if you treated your mother that way, uh, you would not be in a situation of <laughs> care, right? She would be very up, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so really trying to translate, like, what are the hours we we require of patients to accomplish certain theoretically very basic things within the healthcare system. And how does that impact their overall lives and not just the hours that they are actually sitting in a clinical space or in a surgery. So for me, it was not only that fight to access the resource, but it was also the terror that I was going to not have insurance in the future because of political changes. Yeah. Congress at the time was trying to figure out a way to repe- repeal the affordable Care Act. And while the ACA is not a perfect law, and I would really like to sit down with some people who have uh, the power to tweak some things, as, as you've said, I also, it, it gives me at least a chance to get in the door. And yeah. my terror of not having access to that on some future day when this wire in my heart is a problem was really profound. So the political side of the system was just as damaging as sort of the uh, logistical side,
0: and the stress all along the way, all along. So I'm going to pull two of you together here for a second. So um, Aaron uh, has been on our our show addressing um, her diabetes, okay, and you know the complications and um, I guess the policy implications of just. Having insulin available easily and you know affordably, all right. So I wonder if the if the two of you might banter back a little bit back and forth here on uh, two conditions. One is, um, and I know your friends, and so um, you know the fact that um, you know Aaron has a, a chronic condition, um, diabetes, and um, and then of course Catherine, you have your medical, technical condition, okay, which we could call chronic in in this case. So have you guys talked? (laughs) Go ahead.
3: I think we did talk about this very briefly in April when we saw each other last. um, And that's when I brought up having her on the podcast because I just felt like it was the perfect opportunity to have this open discussion. Um, but I, like my immediate gut reaction is, is that it's just so unfortunate that we both have these chronic diseases that put us at a disadvantage to everybody else because we fork over so much more money than, than everybody else does. And they don't, you know, that part of their income doesn't have to go to them keeping themselves alive, you yeah. know? Um, and that the people that are already chronically ill are the ones putting all the time and effort and energy and frustrations into the system when we're the ones who, use it's just, it's this death spiral I like to call. <laughs> um, and um, I just can relate to Katie so much on everything that she wrote about in the book. It, it's, it's also hard to to say much, because I do feel like I come from a privileged situation and that I'm still on my parents' insurance and I'm going to milk that until I turn 26, but it's all very relatable. And this was just a really, really great episode and I really enjoyed
0: it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that question around what constitutes a chronic condition because there are these sort of slow drip chronic conditions where you're waking up and living with it every day or taking the medication every day. And hopefully through that treatment, you're able to forestall any um, crises. And what I've learned about long QT syndrome is that there are these other conditions where the crisis is the primary language of that condition. You're fine for a long time and then it explodes. And when I look at my Finances, as compared to some of my peers or or my sister, um, you know, part of it is being a writer, and <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish I were born a person with different talents. But um, <laughs> it's it's extraordinary to get to pursue this career and be fully who I am and serve in the way that I feel like I'm built to serve. And these periodic uh, just explosions of my life, where suddenly in the same way that I think everyone experienced when COVID first hit, nothing can go in the calendar because what could be a routine procedure in the cath lab could also turn into multiple surgeries and finding out that other things are wrong. And I have debt from writing lightning flowers. And the interesting part of that debt is that a lot of it was therapy and body work related to medical trauma. So it's this added burden of what does it mean to actually recover after certain procedures and you know, that's not something that's in lightning flowers because I had the book end in 2017, but you can certainly tell when I do my lead wire removal surgery, that this is not a good experience for me. That unexpected things happen, painful procedures have taken place. And my body was present for every moment of those procedures, even if my brain was under anesthesia. And has been through and that can show up in very bizarre ways and require treatments that maybe you hadn't heard of before. You know, I really had to pioneer like what types of um, healing practitioners should I be working with to move this type of trauma through the body. And then on the other hand, also the way that medical practitioners themselves did or didn't show up appropriately. And that's situation and this sense of not being listened to or not being taken seriously or being terrified and having to look after yourself at the same time you're coming out of anesthesia from a serious procedure. The emotional ramifications of that have been very real in my life. And in order to tell this story, I had to really process every moment of that. And so it's kind of this shadow cost. It's not even related to what a hospital bills me or what an insurance plan costs. It's related to the way my work life gets disrupted, the way my productivity is disrupted by the trauma itself and and what it takes to actually heal a body.
0: Lifestyle. It's just, it, it, it shocks your lifestyle when you really get down to it. Clarence, thoughts?
2: You know, I am really excited uh, like I said before, I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it, it was is an excellent conversation. What's your plan for that for the next five, 10 years? I mean, I mean, I, I'm gonna tell all my friends to read your book. Okay. So just Yeah, say, so just, we're gonna
0: get you out of debt. We're yeah, gonna yeah, yeah, tell yeah. everybody yeah. on this panel. Yeah, we're gonna sell a million yeah. copies. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Everybody I should read it. the book "Lightning Flowers" <laughs>
2: yeah. by Catherine Stanford. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was I, I was going to say you know we we're in great company now that you've been on Oprah, you've been on NPR, you know, now you've been on Health Chat or what? We don't know what to do now, so we <laughs> we, we feel we feel so honored and privileged. But I, but I, but I do. What's what's the next steps? What do you want to do?
1: That's a wonderful question. Thank you for that. Um, I think right now, so it's been two years since the book came out, and it's been a bizarre time because the book came out on November 10th of t- 2020. And so, book tour looked really different. Trying to move the book into the world has been uh, a, a little bit hit here and miss here. And so, I think I am sort of transitioning right now in a couple of ways. One of them is trying to figure out how do I continue to be an advocate for some of the supply chain side issues that are in the book. In particular, there's a great, great group called My Heart, Your Heart that is figuring out the logistics of pacemaker and defibrillator recycling. So essentially taking devices that barely got used from hospitals or funeral homes and testing them, finding out how much battery they have, making sure the electronics still look good, and then sterilizing them and actually sending them abroad to be a part of FDA approved studies so that we can see if we can start reusing these devices that are so hard won in a, in a resource set. So I want to stay a part of that. And I'm trying to figure out what the best way as a writer and speaker is to be an advocate for that. I also am really interested in continuing to speak within the medical world, which is um, terrifying in certain ways, because as a person who desperately wanted to be listened to by cardiologists and other practitioners, um, I'm really asking to be listened to and to talk about the nuances of how we relate to death and when we call in technology and when the most technological solutions actually aren't the right solution and how to have some bravery around how much risk we're able to tolerate in order to not reach necessarily for the most resource-intensive thing if it's not actually necessary. Um, And then um, personally, I'm working on my second book. And so it's called Skin Hunger. (laughs) And it's about having spent uh, my entire adult life, other than the two years that are described in Lightning Flowers, uh, single. And it's really a reckoning with abstinence culture. It's a reckoning with sex assault. I worked as a sexuality educator for a small clinic in Colorado for a little bit. And that's a very interesting world. And it's also um, becoming in many ways about what it meant to go through illness as a young person and have that disruptive relationship and what yeah. it meant to then go on dates and look people in the face and think, will you be my caregiver at my next heart surgery? <laughs> that really yeah. changes the way you date and it changes your Um, sense of what it means to be in your body and how you listen to intuition and speak about your needs. And so there's a lot there that I'm not uh, I haven't found my way to what the story is or where the answers are yet. And so it's it is a brave process to really ask, how is it that I ended up spending basically my whole adult life single? And what does it mean?
0: You know, it'll be a great, a great book. If 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 your first book is any indication, you are an incredible writer and an engaging storyteller. Um, putting aside the unfortunate of, of of it all, um, we at Health Chatter we always like to end a show by by saying you know what is it that you know that that we can do um one is encourage people to go out and get this book because it, it's just it's an awakening it really is and it, it puts us all in perspective just how vulnerable we all can be at any given point in time um, i want to end by saying this um, August twenty third of uh, 19, of twenty twenty two, an article came out in the Star Tribune here in in, in uh, Minnesota. The FDA recalls Medtronic defibrillators. Okay, and um, and it was because of basically um, the implantable devices can can deliver incorrect information. And I'm thinking, oh my god. I just got done reading this book and I'm thinking what, you know, so, you know, I, I am sure that you're on top of these things when you see them and um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping to God that you won't have to deal with, with any of these things going forward. I want to thank you really sincerely for, for, for being on our show listeners, I, I I encourage you to listen to this show once, maybe twice or three times because there was so much great information shared in it. We have shows coming up um, on on health chatter soon one we're doing one on um, on anti-Semitism, we're doing one on racism. we're going to be doing one on Alzheimer's and memory loss coming up. So we cover the gamut as you can well see. So once again Catherine, Thank you so much. And everybody on the Health Chatter audience, keep health chatting away. Hi, everyone. It's Matthew from behind the scenes. And I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, healthchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there. You can interact with us. You can communicate with us. Send us a message. You can comment on each episode. You can rate us. uh, And it's just another way for everyone to communicate with Uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Health Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's healthchatterpodcast.com.